Well, good morning. What a great, wow, what two really, really good songs. And uh, just tell the story of how it is. Uh, we were dead, but now we're alive. And it's all because of Jesus. And that's why we're here today, to worship Him and to learn about Him. Well, my name is Tony. If you're new with us today and I've not met you, or if you're visiting with us online, I'm Tony. I am the lead pastor here. And uh, today I want to start a brand new series with you called 2020. Um, this is not your normal vision series. You might be expecting, oh, it's January. Pastor Tony's going to be doing a series on the vision of the church and challenging us and telling us to give more and do more and all that because there's people dying and going to hell and we need to get out. You know, that's all important and we're going to get there, but not this month. And uh, this month, it's a vision series for you. That you would have a vision in 2020 for your life. That you would begin to do what you need to do. And, you know, I just want to start the first series naturally in the first week of, uh, because the truth is most of you have already failed these, but resolutions. All right, so I want to talk about resolutions. Let me first start by saying, I don't like them. It's no secret. How many of you have resolutions this year? Oh my goodness. What a bum people. No, I'm just kidding. Seriously, you don't have any... Okay, well, that just totally like... Uh, you're all with me on this then. You're going to understand what I'm saying, you know? I don't usually do New Year's resolutions, and I want to tell you why. So here is a statistics that I don't know if you can read this or not. Maybe this one you can. Um, But I went out and I looked up some statistics, and here are the top resolutions, and you're going to recognize these. And maybe this is why you don't have any resolutions, because you're all older and you understand this and you've done this and you know it doesn't work, right? So anyway, lose weights, number one. Get organized. Spend less, enjoy life, get healthy, learn something, quit smoking, help others, fall in love. I've never seen the fall in love one. How do you set that as a resolution? You know, I will fall in love by June 6th, right? But anyway, uh, more family time. These are all great. They say 45% of all Americans make New Year's resolutions. It's nice to know that we're not part of the normal people in the world, right? (laughs) Because none of you raised your hands, or you're just lazy and you just didn't want to raise your hand. Eight, look at this, eight percent keep their resolutions the entire year. That's not very good. And you want to know the truth? I think it's less than that. I think people lie (laughs) when they're asked this question. You know, come August, hey, you still doing your resolution? Yeah, man, yeah, I'm still doing it. And, and you know, the truth is they, they're not. But anyway, 46% of resolutions are kept for at least six months. That's hopeful, right? You made it six months. 39% of 20-somethings keep resolutions the entire year. And 14% of 50-somethings keep their resolutions. So the younger people are more motivated to change. And to be honest with you, the older people, maybe you just kind of get, once you hit 50, you're like, I am who I am, ain't nothing changing, I'm not going to change a thing, I like who I am, and that's your problem. (laughs) Hello? I'm not sure exactly why I don't sit down and write resolutions Perhaps it's my pragmatic side. They just don't seem logical to me. When you look at these statistics and you say, well, you know, 8% of resolutions will actually, they just seem hard, so why start? And I'm that kind of person. If I don't see value in something, if I don't look, when I look to the future and I say, yeah, that's probably not going to happen or be my, I don't spend a lot of time now trying to do something that I don't think is going to be there in the end. Don't get me wrong, I have goals in life. There are things that I want to achieve. There are some things and goals that I would love to achieve in 2020. And that got me thinking, is there a difference between goals and resolutions? Is there a difference between a goal 
and a resolution. And I got thinking about this this week, and I really think there is. I think there's a difference. Here's what I think. Goals are all about achievement. You set a goal, and you set a number, or you set a certain place you want to be, or a certain job you want to have, and you set this goal, and you go out and you achieve that goal. But resolutions are about change. We set resolutions, maybe not because we want to reach some goal, but we resolve to ourselves that we're going to change this year. I believe almost all of us consider New Year's resolutions because we all want change in our life. Every one of us wants to change some aspect of our life, whether it's our weight, whether it's our jobs, whether it's our relationships, whether it's our habits, whether it's our finances. We all have something about us that we are unhappy with. And so we resolve, we set a resolution that it's going to change this year. That we're going to begin to change our life. We all want change in our life. But I think it goes even a little deeper than that. Why do you want to change your weight or your job or your relationships or your habits or your finances? I think it goes deeper than just those things. I think deep down, we all really just want to be better people. We just want to be better people. We just want to be better, a better me, a better friend, a better husband, a better wife, a better mother, a better dad, a better member of society. We don't want to be bad. We want to be good. We don't want to be hateful. We want to be loving. We don't want to be lost. We want to be found. We don't want to be alone. We want to be connected. We don't want to be jealous anymore. We want to be supportive. We don't want to be negative. We want to be positive. We don't want to be addicted. We want to be free. And we definitely don't want to be dead. We want to be alive. We want to be better. We want to be different. We want to be changed. I think it's even deeper than that. I believe that in all of us, even the most hard and the most difficult, those 50-something-year-olds who don't want to change, I think we all just want to know that our life matters. And we know something inside of us, this image of God that's been marred by sin, this image of God that's been pushed so down, this image of God that's broken and twisted and it's not right. There's something still there. The thumbprint of God is there. And we want to know that our life matters. And in our minds, we think our lives matter when we are better. We want to do something good with our life. We want to make a difference in our families, in our job place, in our relationships, in our community. But let's be honest with each other. Change is hard. Life change is difficult. This is why only 8% of resolutions succeed. This is why when people set out to change, they come down to the end of December and realize, I haven't changed a thing. And then they get all depressed and they spend Christmas thinking, it's going to be different this year. And that's why most people who, as they get older, stop making resolutions. Because they've had too many years of not changing. They just think, why try? Something that I have learned about resolutions in my life is that most resolutions are made on emotion and feelings. We make resolutions based on emotions and feelings. But there's something else that I've learned, and that's this. You cannot, you cannot change. You cannot have real change if you don't first change your heart. For you see, change is not a matter of the 
will, but a matter of the heart. Change is not just about me deciding one day that I'm going to do it because we quickly realize that we don't have the power to do it. Resolutions fail because our heart just isn't in it. It is for a moment, and then it flees. All the alarm clocks, all the Fitbits, all the calendars, all the diets, all, everything that you could possibly imagine doesn't change us because the heart is a fickle thing. It has to do with our resolve and our will, but something else is also involved in change. We also wrestle with the desires of the body and the mind as well as our natural self that teases and tricks our hearts. And here's the tension about change. We manage to change some of our behavior some of the time for some period of time. But there are some things in our life that we just can't seem to change. And the Apostle Paul, who understood very well what change was all about, because he was changed unlike anyone in Scripture. Paul, who used to be Saul, who was a murderer of Christians, he spent his life traveling the countryside with papers to arrest Christians, to wipe out the Jesus movement, to wipe out the Jesus people, to eradicate the name Jesus from all of history. And one day on a Damascus road, Jesus confronted him. And it changed his life. The killing Saul, the Christian killing Saul, now became Paul and became the most vocal and the most well-versed and the most adamant disciple to plant churches and to grow the movement of Jesus than anyone in history. He wrote much of our New Testament. This guy, Paul, knows what it was about to change. And so he begins to address change in our life in Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to start there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We'll be in the first 10 verses. If you've got your Bible, you can open it up, take notes. I'm going to have it up here for you. I'm going to move, so just hang on, all right? Is everybody listening? That's about four of you. All right. Here we go. And you were dead. Okay, let's stop right there. What do you mean dead, Paul? I mean, has Paul lost his mind? Is he writing a letter to dead people? Does he really think dead people are going to read this? What does he mean dead? Is he crazy? Is he out of his mind? Paul is speaking of a death that maybe you're not that familiar with, but I want to share it with you. It's called spiritual death. Death is about separation, right? When you die, there is a separation that happens. Your spirit leaves the body. And if you've ever been in a room when someone has passed and breathed their last, you know what I'm talking about. As I've sat there with loved ones and, and I've sat there in rooms where people breathe their last breath, there's this sense of separation that happens. That the person I once loved, the person I once knew, the person that was breathing and talking and, and speaking and sharing and in communication and relationship with me is no longer there. They're gone. Death is about separation. Physical death is this separation of the body, but it's also a separation from this world, from loved ones, from friends and family. Paul is speaking about a spiritual death that is also about separation. Separation from God. The absence of a relationship. The absence of knowledge and understanding. To not know Him. To be separated from Him. To not be in Him or, or even around Him. Or aware that He's there. Spiritual death is about the loss of hope. 
When you are in a spiritually dead state, when you have not been born again or raised back to life, when your spirit has not been regenerated by God, you are spiritually dead, and that means you no longer have a connection. You no longer have, you, you don't have this relationship with your Creator. And there's something missing in your life. And maybe you felt that. There's something gone. There's something separated. There's no relationship. There's no hope. You're not even sure what happens when you die. You've searched for God, you've looked for God, you've maybe tried God out, but you still don't know God. Because there is a spiritual death. Paul wants us to know that our spiritual state is a result of our sinful condition. He says, you were dead, listen, in the trespasses and sins. That's an interesting word, trespasses. In the Greek it kind of means, and I'm going to paraphrase, it means you're on a walk one day and you think you're on the right path and you wake up and realize you're trespassing and the cops are coming for you. I heard a story once where two guys were in Washington, D.C. and they were walking and they were on a trail and I don't know how it happened, but one guy, he worked at the Pentagon and, and he took this guy on a walk and they took this weird way that they didn't know and all of a sudden they stopped and the guy said, we got to go. I said, what do you mean? we got to go. He goes, we got to go. we got to get out of here. Let's go. Turn around. Let's run. And the guy was weird. And then all of a sudden, cars show up. Lights shining on them. Freeze! They had wandered onto the property of the Pentagon. And he immediately realized they were trespassing. That's what Paul means. You're walking through life and you wake up one day and realize you're on the wrong side of the fence. You're trespassing. But he also says, in your sins. In your sins. Paul understands that being dead in one's sins is a spiritual death because there is a separation. He understood that life without God, listen, life without God is no life at all. And then Paul then goes on and he elaborates for a couple verses on what transgressions and sins are. Verse 2. In which you once walked. Paul uses that word, walked. We see it all over Scripture. He's talking about life. He's talking about choices. He's talking about decisions. He's talking about the everyday, in and out grind of life. We walk through this world. It's a good description of how we live our lives. It reveals our past it reveals our present, and it reveals our future. You say, what do you mean by that? Walking reveals your past. When you walk, you leave footprints. There's evidence of your life. There's relationships, good and bad. There's choices, good and bad. When you walk through life, it reveals a past where you have been. And some of us look back and we realize we have quite a footprint of our past. But Paul also talks about walking and it reveals the present. It has to do with your posture, the way that you currently live. And listen, your lifestyle, some of you are quick and determined and you're confident. Others of you kind of shuffle along and you drag your feet maybe a little bit. And some of you might even be limping. When you walk, it reveals your past. When you walk, it shines light on who, where you are currently in your life. But it also reveals your future. See, what do you mean by that? It means you're going somewhere. There's a destination. Your life is not just now. Your life has a past, it has a present, and whatever you're doing right now, however you're living in life right now, the choices that you're making, it's leading you somewhere. You're on a path, a destination, physical and spiritual. Where you desire and where you plan to be tomorrow will determine how you live today. And so Paul gives us these three essential or influential reasons that the Gentiles, that these Ephesians, are walking in transgressions and sin. And the first one is this. He says, next, next verse, he says, following the course of this world, there's number one, 
following the prince of the power of the air, there's number two, and following the spirit that is not at work, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Let me just quickly break this down for you. This is how they walked. And maybe this is how you're walking. Maybe this is how you're living your life. You're being led around. You're following the ways of the world. You say, Pastor Tony, what do you mean the ways of the world? Paul literally uses a Greek word here that means age. It's this idea of a period of time. The word ways, the word ways of the world has this idea, this this word picture of that there is this period of time In all periods of time, there are patterns of the age that entice people, listen, that entice us to conform. Every generation, every culture has a period of time. That period of time, that age, that way of the world we all live with. It invites us to conform to the way of thinking and living. Last week I made this comment. I said, the culture will tease you to the edge and then it will mock you when you step over the line. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about walking in the ways of the world. And the ways of the world entice you to conform. Entice you to the edge of transgression, trespass, and sin. An age whose standards and measures mislead us. They imply truth when there is no truth. They imply hope when there is no hope. They imply that there is life in this way of the world when there is nothing but heartache and brokenness and trouble. It is a life that has been, Paul is talking about a life that has been separated from God. That knows no other way to live but then to follow the ways of the world. When you are dead in your trespass and sin, when you are not knowledgeable of God and you are separated from God, then you will be enticed by the ways of the world. Second thing he says is, to follow the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is one of few times that Paul actually makes reference to Satan himself. Paul wants the Christians to understand that there is a kingdom of God, but there is also a kingdom of the air. That the Lord of that kingdom, who is Satan, his official position of that kingdom is ruler of, of this age of sin. It has to do with his kingdom that is patterned after Satan himself. You say, well, how is Satan? What do you mean the kingdom of Satan is patterned after the kingdom himself? We know this from Scripture, that Satan is an accuser. That those who follow Satan's ways are very comfortable in bringing allegations and questions and doubt And they come after people who are simply trying to live out the character and the endeavors of God's will. We see it all around us. People who are simply trying to do what is right, simply trying to obey God's will and God's law. People mock them. They accuse them. Satan is also a liar. And those who follow Satan's ways are also liars. They would rather proclaim mistruths and half-truths than to simply be honest. We also know that Satan causes division in the world and in the church. Why? Because Satan's kingdom is all about gossip and pride and the quest for power and control. We see this all around us. It causes division in our world. It causes When people go out and all that they want, fueled by pride, is to be in power and have control over us and everyone else around them. This is what people who are walking this way are following the ways of the ruler. They're following the character 
of who Satan is. But there's a third one. They also followed the spirit of who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And I want to teach you a little here. In the original Greek, the word spirit here is not a reference to a specific being. Paul here is not talking about Satan. Paul here is not talking about uh, a spiritual being, a spirit who is now at work. Paul is simply talking about a way, an attitude, that is not from the external, but from the internal world of people. You say, well, what do you mean by that? I know that many of us would like this to be a specific being, and I'm going to tell you why. i am be honest, I would too. It's just easier to blame the devil for my problems. It's just easier to blame the devil for my behavior. It's just easier to blame the devil rather than look in the mirror. You've heard it said, the devil made me do it. The truth is, we often blame human sin and actions on something or someone else in an attempt to remain guiltless. Paul wants his readers to know that we do follow the ways of the world. We do follow and kind of mirror the ruler of the air, who is Satan. But we also follow a spirit that is found in those who are disobedient. We, instead of coming clean, blame the devil. Paul wants us to know that much of our problems have to do simply with the sin in our own hearts. That we are simply reflecting the fallen condition of where we are in our dead spiritual state. The Gentiles were dead in their transgressions and sins, not because they were made by the devil to do it, but because they followed the prevalent sinful attitudes of the day. They were led along by the sinful nature of their hearts. What was wrong is now right. What was right is now archaic. Morality is being redefined by our image, not from God. And so Paul makes the case. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of of humankind. So Paul kind of sums up, he says, okay, this is bad. It's a bad place to be. It's not good to be separated from God. It's not good to be dead to God uh, because you're being led along. I, I know you're breathing and you're walking and you're making decisions. You're living, but you're dead. And when you're living and you're dead to God, you make all these decisions. You're being led by your sinful nature. You're being led by the devil himself. You're being led by just the ways of the world. And you think you're in control, but you're really being led to a destination that you don't want to go. And it's bad. And here's what Paul says. Look, he says, we've all been there. We know this. I know this. Paul says, I was the worst. I was killing God's people. I I was against Christ. I was against Jesus. I, I was the worst of all of them. It's true. And all of us are sinners. then verse 4 but God (laughs) things are bad your life's a mess your marriage is a wreck your relationships are a wreck your kids don't want to talk to you you can't get along with them everything's a mess it's upside down and this is why but guess what you need to straighten up that's not what he said you need to fix it no that's not what he said This is your fault. That's not even really what he said. He says, but God. But God. Everything changes with this verse. Remember the old chuck wagon shows when you saw the 
people heading out west and they got out into the wilderness and all of a sudden the Indians started coming down on them and arrows started landing in the, going through the wagons and they'd circle around and the guys would get their guns and they were just outnumbered and it's just, I mean, it was hopeless. Remember that? And you're sitting there going, this is bad. Everybody's going to die. It's terrible. And then all of a sudden you hear a bugle. And up over the hill comes the cavalry. This is Paul's bugle. It's bad. It's not good. Things are bad. But God. And the cavalry comes. Paul uses this little technique that we miss in our translations. He uses a technique that the Greek writers would use to bring an emphasis to something. And here's what they would do. Word order in the Greek, and and when you read the Greek, the original text and how Paul wrote it, sometimes it can be confusing. That's why we have so many translations. Not the meaning, but the order of it. Sometimes words are over here, but the translator will translate them over here, and, and you're trying to figure this all out and trying to look at this. Here's what Paul did with this verse. He uses a technique that a lot of Greek writers did. He, cha- he, he used the order of this phrase to give emphasis to this. Some of you have an NIV. Who has an NIV Bible? What does that say back there? The NIV. You're not, you don't have it open. You don't have your NIV with you. I get it. How many of you have an NIV with you? What's it say? Verse 4. God. But, okay, stop there. But because of his great love for us, God. That's how the NIV, they didn't change the meaning of this. It's just they didn't quite give it the emphasis that Paul wanted us to have. Because Paul, Paul wrote this phrase, de ho theos, first. But God. Here's a more literal translation. Who has an ESV? English Standard Version. Brandon, you got one of those, right? Not on you. All right. Here's what it says. But God. (laughs) Being rich in mercy because of his great love for us. See the difference? Paul wanted us to know That how we approach life, how we approach God, how we approach our situation, how we approach how we should change, how we we approach all things in life should be, yeah, but God. But God. When the accuser comes and he starts pointing to your past, yeah, but God. When he looks at your present situation, yeah, but God. When the accuser comes and says, where do you think you're going? Your life's never going to amount to anything. You can say, yeah, but God. (laughs) Who can argue with that? Who can argue with the but God? I know, I know, I messed up and I promise I'll do better. I know my life's a mech, but 2020 is going to be different because I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to get rid of that, I'm going to get rid of that, I'm going to start doing There's a problem with that. And this is the problem with New Year's resolutions. It's all about you. And what you are going to do to change your life. And Paul says, you're dead, man. You can't do anything. You can't change your life. You can't change your circumstance. You can't change your spiritual condition. You can't change your relationship with God. There's not a thing you can do. But God, this is such great news. You see, we underestimate the power of sin and the effect of sin in our life. And we highly overestimate our ability to change and to fix it. Paul wants us to know that in our natural state, we are dead, powerless, and separated. But then he says this, being rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy. In mercy. He just doesn't say God has mercy. Like one time God's going to say, I have pity on you. Go, but don't mess up again. Paul says, no, but God, 
being rich in mercy. That means it's unlimited. He has more mercy than you could possibly imagine. You know what mercy is? Mercy is when someone who stands in judgment over you and authority over you says, I know this is the way it is. I know that you're dead. I know that things are bad. But I'm not going to give you what you deserve. But I deserve punishment. I deserve, you know, I deserve God says, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. Well, what is that? Because of His great love. Because of His great love. It's not based on my past. It's not based on my present. It's not even based on my future. No, it's based on my ability to simply know God. To know that God has worked in my behalf. That God has worked through Jesus Christ. That God came to me to save me. God did something incredible. God moved toward us and embraced us. Not because He had to, but because He simply wanted to. And He willed that. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Even when we were dead. This is Paul emphasizing our inability to save ourselves. More emphasis on our inability to not save ourselves, Paul's giving. Next. God made us alive. There's that word alive. He's playing with this, you were dead in your sins and transgressions, but God, now you're alive. Jesus' resurrection, the power that raised His physical body up out of that grave, is the same power that comes to us now. The power of the Holy Spirit to take your dead spiritual life and to bring it to life. To raise it from the dead so that you can know God. So that you can be close to God. So that you can be in relationship to God. So that you can begin the process of allowing God through the relationship with Him to change your heart. Okay, Paul. It's getting a little deep in here, right? It's getting a little theological. and Can you just kind of sum it all up for us? Yeah, sure, I can sum it up. Here's what he says. Nope, go back. By grace, you have been saved. Not by works, not by your abilities, not because you feel really, really guilty and you decide you're going to give a lot of money to the church or, uh, you know, or you feel really, really guilty and you know you just need to go to church. If I could just clean up my life, if I could just... You know, if I could just get rid of that or get rid of them or, you know, whatever it is. The things that we come up with in our mind. No, Paul says simply this. Listen, we were dead, but now we're alive. And it's not because of us, but it's because of God and His grace. Grace is unmerited. God, through His love, simply saved us. You say, what do you mean saved? It means He delivered us from the separation and the power of sin. Separated from God. Now, over the power of sin, it is gone. Saved from the ways of the world. The ruler of this air. Paul is saying, this is amazing. This is blows my mind. It's beyond amazing. It's beyond comprehension. And even to this day, the church struggles with this idea. We fight over, well, is how much of me is involved and how much is not involved and, and all of these fights. And you've got people way out here that says you can't do anything. God just simply, oh, you're chosen. And, he, and then some people over here, like they feel like they're dangling over fire and God's got a knife in His hand. And if they make one simple little mistake and you've got these two pendulums of people who the way they look at God... And it's just simply this. God loves you and wants to be in relationship with you. And because of that, His mercy and His grace saves us if we have faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 8. I'm going to skip to verse 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Because if you could save yourself, we'd have a lot of puffed up, 
proud people walking around. Yeah, but I did better than you. I did four good works this week, and God's going to give me a better seat at the table. That's what Paul's saying. He says God knew what he was doing. Because even in our fallen state, we can't handle this. God has to save us. He says, not as a result of work so that you may boast. Verse 9, that was verse 9. Verse 10, and now we get down to the last. Sometimes we leave this one off, but I love this verse. So he's given this, you were dead and your sins and transgressions. You're being led along by the ways of the world, by the ways of the Satan himself. You're kind of mirroring who he is. You're an accuser. You're a liar. You know, you gossip. You're a division. You divide people because of the sin that's in your heart. And you're also just kind of going with whatever's in your heart and the spirit that's in our world because of the sinfulness in people's hearts. You're being pulled along. He says, there's just really no hope for you but God. Yeah, he loves you more than you'll ever imagine. And his mercy and his love and his grace, if you'll believe in the person of Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Saved. And he comes all the way down to this verse, and he says this, For we are his workmanship. Some of your translations say handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, (laughs) follow me here. The Greek word that Paul uses for workmanship, in the English, we translate poem. For we are his poem. We are his song, his composition. Paul pulls on a word that he uses only twice in all of Scripture. In all of Scripture, this word is only used twice. It's used here, poema, and it's also used in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul is talking about how God created the world, and He created the world in such a way that all mankind would look upon creation, and they could not deny that there was a God. That God's creation is so clear that He's such a brilliant creator and designer. That God created... This is the only two places when God created the world and when God created His church. His people. Those who were dead, who are now alive. Only twice Paul wants us to see that we are a creative work with all sorts of messy pasts and and separation and broken relationships and abuse and addictions and all the things that you could imagine that bring life down and kills us, Paul wants you to see that, wait a minute, God did something so great that it's as though God is writing a song and it's about you. And this song is going, God is going to hold this song up and all of creation is going to see The song of the redeemed. We are His handiwork. We have been created anew. What was dead is now alive. This is not just a creation of nature, but a creation of redemption. A song of redemption. A redeemed song. A poem of who God is and what God has done. And then he says, for good works, we have been created in Christ Jesus. Look, for good works. And there's the change. There's the change you want. There's the desire of your heart to be better. To love to be transformed. We were dead and walking in bad works, but God saved us, changed us, and now we are walking around doing good works. I know I gave resolutions kind of a bad rap. You know, you should create resolutions. They're not all bad. You should set goals for yourself. But I think 
in those resolutions as we strive to discipline our life in the areas we want to see changed. There are also things that we've been trying to change and overcome in our lives for a very long time. And what I know and what you know is this. There are no resolutions that are going to change some things in your life. No amount of discipline, no amount of good, no amount of good works, hard work, they all seem to not make a difference. You just can't change certain things in your life. The relationships in your life that remain broken, the jealousies that burn in your mind, the envy that consumes the guilt and the shame of past regrets, they all chain you down. And here's the heart of the matter. No matter how hard you try, how hard you work at it, you cannot seem to love God with your whole heart. And you cannot seem to love your neighbor like yourself. And you want that to change. And here's why. Because at the heart and the spirit of the issue is that only God can truly change my heart. And where my heart goes, how my heart is, is where my actions will be. And here's the bottom line this morning for you. The best you is the one God builds. The best you is the one that God creates and builds. Listen, the beauty that is your life, the good that you can do in this world, the purpose and the meaning that brings hope is not forged from the works of my hands or the discipline of my will, but from the mercy and the love and the grace of God that I allow to change me. The best you is the one that God builds. This series is all about this question for you this year. Is what is your vision for spiritual growth? I want to encourage you this year to make a commitment to recommit your life to the work of the Spirit. To recommit your life to the work of Jesus' Spirit. To transform and change your heart from the inside out. Because as you begin to allow the grace of God to change you, and it is a dance, the grace of God is available. What you're doing right now is a means of grace. Gathering and singing and listening to the Word, what you do in your small groups, what you do on the phone, what you do when you talk about God or Jesus, what you do in your personal devotion life, it's a means of grace. You put yourself kind of under the spigot of grace and allow that grace to just change you. What was dead becomes alive. And I want to challenge you this year, Christians, recommit yourself to that recommit yourself to allowing the grace you need to show up you need to jump in and you need to live out the mission of god you need to show up you need to put yourself in situations that grow you around people who bring you up not tear you down to put yourself in situations you need to show up in your quiet time in your quiet place and allow God to begin to shape and mold you you need to jump in and get involved and get engaged in the life of a church and the life of a small group so that you can live out what it is God's wanting for you that's my challenge to you but maybe some of you are here and you've never made this decision you're like I'm dead. I don't even know God. I don't even know if I can know God. I want you to know this today, and I want you to hear this. His love for you, it's immense. It's overwhelming. When you look at the condition that Paul paints on the pages for us in those first three verses, you're like, what is the point of life? And then he says, but God... <laughs> 
And that's your verse. Your past, your present, and your future, you can say, maybe it seemed hopeless, but God. And you need to put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ today. And believe that God wants better for you. From the inside out. Let me pray for you. Our Holy Father, God, you are amazing. What you did for us, words can hardly explain it. It's hard to wrap our mind around the idea, God, that anything's free, especially forgiveness. But that's who you are. Your son Jesus died, was raised from the dead, and we all can believe in that and put our faith and our hope in that and begin to obey you as we follow you, as you change us. Your grace changes our hearts. I pray, Lord, for those who are here who have been walking with you, but they've just kind of lost the commitment. I pray that they recommit this year not so much to just a resolution, but to spiritual development, to spiritual growth, with the understanding that God wants to change me, and His grace can do that if I allow it. May they start a conversation anew with you, God, by simply asking, God, where do you want to change in me today? And God, I pray for those that have never made that step. Maybe as a child they did, but they didn't understand it. I just pray today, Lord, that they would begin to seek, that they would begin to pour out their heart to you. They would confess their sin, repent, knowing that there's a God who wants to embrace and love them through the whole process. And God, we're here to help them. I pray that they'll reach out to us, people in this church, a family member, a pastor, worship leader, anybody who they might think would just simply sit down and talk with them about this. Jesus, may we never forget that the best of us is what you create. The best is what you've built so that at the end of the age the choir stands to sing and the angels begin to play, it will be an amazing song of redemption. And I could see Paul say, see, look what God's done as he points to the redeemed who have put their faith in Jesus and been changed. Look what God has done. Look what God did and those who believed and had faith. What a great day that will be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Watch this video.